Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Little bit of housekeeping. You know what I need to ask you. I need you to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. It's at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. Throw us the price of a fancy cup of coffee and a scone once a month. And for that, you'll get access to all of our podcasts, one consolidated feed, and they're entirely plea free. You also get early access to all our episodes as quickly as I can turn them around. And you get exclusives that don't go out. Stuff that we keep behind the paywall just for the benefit of uh, keeping our solicitor less busy. So if you like what we do and you get something out of it, help keep the mics on, the conversations happening, and pay it forward so we can keep it free. Ad-free, sponsor-free, and no need for any editorial control. It's very clear over the last few weeks, independent media matters more now than ever, but it doesn't exist without your support. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'll stop rabbiting on. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Dr. Morgan Phillips, who is the Head of Education and Youth Engagement at Global Action Plan and the author of Great Adaptations. Um, Morgan is someone who's been engaging in the whole area of environmental education um, really uh, for many, many years. And he came to my attention um, when I saw a tweet that he sent um, on an article he'd written on the whole issue of eco-anxiety and status anxiety. Um, And listeners will be very familiar with um, these issues that we have talked about, the whole uh, area of consumption around climate change and the connection with inequality and the connection with status and inequality. It's something we've discussed quite a bit on this podcast. Morgan, I'm delighted uh, for you to be here in Reboot Republic today, and I'm really looking forward to this chat. Oh, thanks for having me, Rory. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting topic, and we're just I think I've always been exploring how eco anxiety and status anxiety are kind of mixed together without really probably tying it together that much. So yeah, ended up writing a short short piece about it, just just jotting down my thoughts. Really, I don't know if, if I've fully um got across what I meant. So it's nice to have a bit more of a chat about it. Yeah, and and it's um, you know, people are. In, in different ways, you know, there's in terms of the climate emergency, there's kind of different angles coming at this. And being, you know, someone who's lecturing in, in this area in, in social justice and climate justice um, and discussing it with other colleagues around, you know, and then, you know, obviously living in the world and trying to campaign on it. And, you know, my own children then as well. Um, th- there's so many different aspects that there is an anxiety around the climate and I've talked about this before in the podcast, you know, my own daughter chasing me around the house, turning off the lights, uh, even when you need the lights <laughs> and yeah. just, you know, the, then you, of course you have this thing where we're actually trying to also educate inform, and engage people to actually see the extent of the crisis and emergency that's going on. Um, and then while at the other side going, you know, well, it's not actually your fault. It's the system. It's, you know, the, you know, global corporations, what they are doing. And then this whole wider um, question of, you know, how do we change that system? And, and there, there's so many things going on that sometimes, you know, you also feel people feel, oh, I just want to switch off this and it's just too hard. And <laughs> then, you know, you're you're engaged with it. What, what's your thoughts on it in terms of this? Yeah, I think you're right. I think the more that we 
learn about the ecological crisis and understand how it kind of mixes in with other issues that we're seeing around mental health crisis, around inequality and so on. And it's it's a confusing thing to encounter. I mean, you can encounter it in, a, in real terms. I mean, you know, heat waves hitting us and flooding and, and all of what we see in the news, but also increasing in people's lives as they're being sort of hit with it and then they're learning about it. And I think that breeds obviously confusion and fear and um, uncertainty. And I think the kind of eco-anxiety term itself is like, it's it's not the same thing for everyone, right? It's 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 different. It changes and it's and it changes over time, and we and we experience it in different ways. And I think a lot of it's kind of it's it's this anxiety which comes with the recognition that change is inevitable. Some sort of change is going to happen or is happening, and it's it's the physical change, the way the world is physically changing, but it's also the changes that are happening in the way that businesses are responding, governments are responding, and the policies that are being put in place, and that is sort of anxiety then is like, oh, I thought my landscape was going to be the same as ever. And it's always going to have, I'm always going to have the same view out of my window. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, the government want to build some wind turbines here. And that creates loads of anxiety. It's like, oh, yeah. this is going to change. And 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 then that, that then creates this real sort of dissonance and uncomfortable feeling because you know that things have to change if we're going to tackle these crises. But you also don't want things to change because you like your view and you and you don't want it to be spoiled by turbines, solar panels, you know, pylons and whatever, and all everything else which which comes with it. So I think these anxieties are are really quite complex. What's what's going on there? And I think what you're saying about the systemic shifts and the systemic changes, I think certainly I've seen in the last decade for sure is this this recognition that the individual behaviour change type approach to creating to, to tackling the crisis isn't isn't going to work. You know, we we can't just we can't just rely on individuals changing little parts of their lives, and that's going to create the bigger changes. We understand that the issue is a systemic issue. That we have an economic system which is basically driving all of this um, consumption and therefore pollution, and therefore carbon emissions, and therefore destruction ultimately. And we're seeing, I think. Even with within our organization, Global Action Plan has been on a journey shifting from being a behavior change organization to understanding that actually what we need to do is to mobilize action on the systems that, that harm us and harm our planet. Because if we don't tackle things at the systemic level, the individual behavior change stuff isn't isn't really gonna scratch the surface ultimately. So um yeah, it's a bit of a jumble of thoughts, but it's be my initial really? sort of take on it. Yeah. No, it is it, it's interesting and it's so important as well because when I'm listening to you, what I'm thinking is, of course, but we have to change individually as well in order to get that change. And we have to think about, you know, what is our role within all this? And maybe a certain amount of anxiety is actually good because it will force change. And yet, of course, we know anxiety is hugely damaging to ourselves as well in that mental health sense. So it's a difficult one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's very much an argument to say that there isn't enough eco anxiety around, you know. Yeah. Why are people like absolutely terrified of this? And and you know, there's arguments to say, you know, we we should make sure everybody knows the facts and everybody knows the danger that we're headed to. Everybody knows that. Everybody should know that changes are going to happen in a in a linear way. Things aren't just going to gradually get worse and worse. There's, they're going to suddenly it could suddenly just tip, and we could have a frightening amount of change very very quickly. And 
I guess the, the people who do engage with it deeply do have that deep fear, and that's probably is what's driving them to to try and push for change. And you're right, individual change is needed because it it shows the way, it shows what's possible, it shows that um, people are ready for change. So my the area that I work on most mostly is environmental education, and you know, we have a a strategy which involves being the change in the education system we want to see. So delivering education projects and programs which are different to what normally happens in schools so that we can show that these things are both enjoyable and effective in terms of young people's learning, young people's well-being, young people, people's sort of ability to take action on environmental issues. Because if we can't show it, then, you know, politicians aren't ever going to shift change the system because they can't imagine what the new system will look like and they don't and they are only sort of, you know, they, they have to take our word for it that this is what teachers and students and parents want for their children, is these new systems. If, if they're not seeing the new systems and they're not seeing the new types of education happening, then it's very hard for them to create a, an education policy environment which enables those new forms of education to happen. And that's true across lots of different areas. You know, we have to kind of have that bottom-up um, role, role modelling of what the world could look like because that gives politicians the confidence that they can create the political shifts and the policy shifts, which will allow those things to scale and go, go further. But um, ultimately, though, it's the systemic shift which, which really is needed. Um, it, it, as without it, we can't, we can't, we don't. Without we lack the ability to do to do the stuff at the individual level, we, we come up against too many barriers. Yeah, and of course, then the question is, you know, how how do how do we get? system change and systemic change. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, because I want to come back to the education piece again, because it is something that is, you know, how do we teach our, edu you know, educators, students, young people in a way that doesn't um, leave them just in this state of eco-anxiety, but actually can empower them and, and get the sense that they can change it. And are there ages by which, you know, we should tailor what we're teaching Um and so I'll come back to that. But firstly, I want to talk about the idea that you did talk about in your, in your, um, you wrote about in, in your uh, piece, which was on the concept of status anxiety and its connection with consumerism and how we, at the heart of, you know, the, the emissions crisis is consumption and consumption of materials. And we, what drives a lot of that consumption is status anxiety because people, as you say, you know, they want to keep up with the Joneses and, you know, you make a comment about, you know, someone saying, oh, you don't have the latest car or things not going well for you. And um, there's a lot of this. But then on the other hand, that status anxiety is driven by corporations, businesses trying to sell as much po products as possible. So, you know, trying to unpack that a bit, you know, but I think you are making a point. Maybe you want to explain that, that connection between status anxiety and consumption and how that's linked then to, you know, the climate and environment. Yeah. Um, my understanding of status anxiety kind of started with Alan de Botton. I remember he did a documentary, I think it was in 2004-ish, um, and a book around what it is and sort of where it comes from. And you know, it's it's more prevalent in societies with high levels of inequality because we are judging each other, sort of the people slightly above us and the people slightly below us, and we're always kind of there, sort of, are we measuring up against them? And and the more stratified a society is, the more sort of levels there are in a society, then 
even if you jump up a level, there's another one straight away and another one straight away. So if there were fewer levels of inequality, then probably we um, have such a issue with it. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it comes, it goes way back there, doesn't it? The the kind of conspicuous consumption, us sort of showing who we are through what we consume, goes back to to Verblen, talks to Verblen. He talks about that in like 1899 when he his theory of the ledger crashes book, and that sort of showed he, he sort of coined the term conspicuous consumption and conspicuous consumption being us buying yeah cars, clothes, holidays, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, to to signify to others our wealth and therefore our status in society in society and our kind of drives to do to buy stuff to show that we're wealthy is is based on our kind of insecurities around our status in a society so if you're feeling that your 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 status is lower than it should be you want you want your status to rise and a way that you can kind of show others that your status is growing is through your through your consumption hence we consume a lot. It's not true of everyone. I mean, I'm using we quite liberally, but yes, yeah. it's, I think if you, if you are quite riddled by status anxiety, you do tend to want to consume stuff to show that you have higher levels of status, because that will then give you external kind of validation that you're a successful human being. It's, you know, it's something which I think younger people, especially suffering teenagers, especially suffer it, you know, they're, they're trying to sort of construct their identities, they're trying to be popular, they're trying to find a partner and all that stuff's going on. So they're, they're kind of wanting to succeed and they're wanting to show that they're successful and that they, they are worth being friends with or or sort of partnering up with for life. And so it's it's quite strong there. And then like you say, the corporations and the people who are selling products and services to us, or the high status products and services, they know that we're riddled with these insecurities. And so they play on them, you know, it's kind of, you know, oh, you look at, you know, you've had that car for too long. You should probably upgrade yeah. that car so you can look a bit cooler. And the whole advertising that. industry. Yeah, it's all based on it. And so it's, Marketing. it's, that goes on. And that's part of the solution. And it's something we do as much as we can is to, is to help young people to understand that and, and understand the kind of, and to question it. And this, this is kind of like, um, Vance Packard and the Hidden Persuaders and, and sort of discovering and you know, helping young people to understand how, psycho- how psychologists are being involved in advertising and and basically tricking people into feeling terrible about themselves so that they'll go and buy stuff and and sort of helping to understand that and the ethics around that to question that is, is a great part of education which can be really powerful because it can lead young people and adults to, you know, ultimately start to let go of those desires to have conspicuous consumption and start to think about what actually makes me happy what what is friendship actually based on and it's not normally based on you know i'm not friends with people because of the clothes they wear and the cars they drive it's, it's it goes a bit deeper than that that's that's not how absolutely people work and i think sorry yeah no no you're absolutely right i, I think it's so fascinating the you know, that conspicuous consumption idea. And of course, you know, it goes back historically in human societies, you know, trappings of, you know, wealth and, you know, what people had to show off uh, their wealth and their status. And I suppose what has become endemic throughout, you know, capitalism and, and you know, across societies is this con- this idea that, yeah, you show your status and your achievements in society and, and your life through what you have, through the the possessions that you have and and the and 
you know, the, the, what's put up as and what's promoted as successful people are the ones who have the house with the swimming pool and the the two cars. And, you know, this has been the model of success. And we see it now with the billionaires and you see it on Love Island and you see it or wherever, not necessarily Love Island, but, well, you know, it's beautiful <laughs> places where you the privileged yeah. live and the 1% live. And this is the aspiration and the all this, the, the celebrity culture, which is all built around consumption as well. And you see all the influencers and it's all about selling the products and selling, you know, selling the life, you know, what is the yeah. life and the life is having, you know, the wealth and the the huge properties. And, and in a way that the status anxiety then flows throughout society that to be good and to be successful, we need to have those things. And so, you know, I think you're so right because to challenge that, we need to challenge that in ourselves and challenge that in society and goes, that's not actually a true value of or measure of success or achievement or makes people happy. Yeah, that's it. So it's it's the job to do and the antidote to it is to is to help people to reevaluate what success is and to properly question it. You know, is his his success having the big car and the big holiday and the, and all of that stuff? Or is it to have genuine friendships, physical, mental well being, you know, and not sort of be constantly chasing the need to consume and having you're kind of um, being, we call it kind of intrinsic rewards rather than extrinsic rewards. So, so you're you're able to sort of gain well-being. Explain that. Well, extrinsic rewards are kind of when you when somebody else is telling you that you've done well or that you're yeah. good. So it's like prizes. Um, it's like badges, certificates, you know, flags, and all these kind of awards and all that sort of stuff. And <laughs> And kind of status in society and being a celebrity and being famous or and it, that's you know you're, you're constantly relying on other people telling you how great you are to for your own happiness whereas if you're intrinsically motivated then you get rewards through just kind of doing stuff so i think a good example is musicians sort of some musicians will they're, they're just driven by fame they want them they want all the fame and the status and the money and the acclaim and that's what drives them, and, so, and then when it disappears, they they sort of go into a into a tailspin, and the music is kind of a means to the end of having all of that that adulation. Whereas musicians who are just who who just love making music, and they don't really care if anybody else likes it, the process for them of making music is so rewarding that they they're just happy to make music, and they don't really care if anybody listens to it. They don't care what they think of it because it's satisfied their sort of internal happiness and so they're not chasing kind of external validation all the time and so it's it's that sort of shift i think um and helping people to let go of that need for external validation is, is a big part of helping to let go of status anxiety because they are becoming more comfortable and this is me talking and i'm not a psychologist and it's it is but this is my understanding of it and well are you are an educator more, you are no, you know, yeah yeah but there's people far more sort of trained in understanding these these issues and, the, and the, these differences but it's it's certainly something but i think that redefinition of, of success is a, is a big part of letting go yeah. of status anxiety but to link it to eco anxiety just yes yeah. to come back to that the you know i think i'm putting in the piece that you know our, as we develop eco anxiety we're effectively being held or we're coming to the realization that we need to consume less to to help limit our impact on the planet yeah. but if we're st- if we still got status anxiety that's still screaming at us to consume more. Yeah. And so this creates this really hard tension to overcome because we 
we a can't see how we might be able to do that because we just think, okay, I want to I want to lower my consumption footprint for the sake of the planet, but I still need to consume more to remain popular or whatever it is that that extrinsic reward is. And so that's a really hard thing to un- undo. And you're also thinking as well that the rest of society is all wanting to consume loads. So even if you have kind of let go of that state of anxiety yourself, you're assuming that everybody else is still wanting to consume loads. And so that makes you a bit more, even more sort of unlikely that things can change and that, that consumption can ever come down at a kind of aggregate societal level. So I think, you know, this is why working on eco-anxiety alone is, is not really enough. I mean, we have to work on, you know, these drivers of consumption because our, our environmental concerns are only one of the things shaping what we consume. There's hundreds of other things shaping what we consume as well, like hundreds of other pressures as well. And if, unless we understand these other pressures, one of them being states of anxiety, then it's really hard to sort of let go of those consumerist urges that, that are driving, you know, the consumption and production of ever more, more materials and all the pollution and everything else goes with it. So it's, um, I do feel that if we can, and it's, it is a kind of a light bulb moment for people to, to start to sort of let go of the, the feeling that they need to consume in a conspicuous way and the way that they need to sort of show off their identity through their consumption or to consume things to be happy. And you know, if, if you can find other routes to happiness, which are less um, reliant on consumption and less reliant on external validation, then it suddenly becomes so, so much easier to, to lower your environmental footprint because you, you, you actually just, you just don't want to do that stuff anymore for your own, for all the other, for your mental health reasons. You kind of, you just, you, you've already let go of the kind of the need to consume in excessive ways. And the environmental argument just bolsters it. It's just an extra reason to not consume as much. So I think that's that's where the hope lies for me is in is exploring how how we can sort of let go of those consumerist values and those consumerist kind of um ambitions and and sort of um feelings, I guess, that we have. Yeah, it it's really interesting and, and I suppose to bring it back to conclude in terms of the education piece that that's kind of your the case you're making and and your approach within education then with children and young people and across society is that idea of yes we need to you know understand about the environment and climate but then the other side is we need to think about and challenge ourselves in terms of why are we feeling this status anxiety and this drive for consumption and if you know, and and trying to understand that actually that doesn't make you happier and that this consumption actually has negative impacts on ourselves. It doesn't make us actually happier and has negative impacts in the environment. Is that essentially what you're trying to, is that where you see the hope and, and trying to, you know, educate around that, those ideas? Yeah, for sure. It's, um, I think, I mean, we have a bit of a saying at Global Action Plan, we, we say, you know, not not all education that is for the environment needs to be about the environment. It can, you know, it could be as powerful to question the marketing tactics of the big sort of advertising agencies and the ethics of it. If you do that with young people, help them understand sort of how an advert is constructed, what it's, you know, which sort of insecurities it's trying to um, expose and sort of exploit, then that is a way in which you can help young people to see that they're basically being tricked and it's it's not good for their mental health and it's not good 
or the planet. And and just by doing that, I mean, for me personally, it's it's what it's what helped me to become to lower my my consumption was to understand that how I was being tricked into consuming loads of stuff which I didn't actually need to make me happy. And that had a as powerful effect on on my behavior and my sort of lifestyle as 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 the environmental knowledge I was gaining and understanding that and like I said before, the environmental stuff just kind of backs it up. It just it gives you another reason to lower your consumption and to justify lowering your consumption if you feel you need to. Some people definitely feel they need to I mean if people need feel the need to justify them certainly vegetarian or vegan, you know, they, they need to they feel they need to justify that. Um and you can justify it on health grounds, on mental health grounds and on on planetary grounds as well. So it's it's all helps people to come up with those arguments. Absolutely. And a last question, just that the as far as my understanding, the the data sort of shows that the biggest consumption is taking place at the top in society and that you know we can change our consumption but it's really as i said at the top of society that has to change its consumption and so how do you sp- spread that message while also saying yeah we do need to change ourselves um yeah i mean i think it's crazy the the disproportionate amount of the world's resources are being used by the top 10% and even the, the top 1% and even the top 0.1% are just—it's just extreme how much they're consuming, and a lot of those. I mean, I'm not saying the whole of the top 10% have kind of riddled with status anxiety. But I'm, you and I are probably in the top 10% of earners, and the. But we know that there's insatiable levels of greed going on in the top 1%, top 0.1%, which are turning into massive amounts of consumption and environmental impact. Tackling that, it's. I wouldn't say it's easy to do it because I think a lot of people there who are in, in those spaces have enormous amounts of power and, and are able to continue to shape you know, their influence on politics to be able to shape the kind of the laws around how much we are allowed to consume and what we're allowed to consume and where and when. You know, they're influencing on those things. Um but I think it's it is a case of um looking at the sort of the the top fifty percent and the consumption there and, and how much status anxiety still exists there, how much consu- consumption still exists at that level, we can tackle it there by helping people to see through the yeah again the tactics of advertisers and, and the consumerist pressures on this and help to start to net the other and then that, that will surely have a large effect because that is ultimately feeding the wealth of those people in the very top that they are kind of sucking up the money from everyone else are all, all like disappearing to the top um but if if they're not able to make huge profits in the same way because people aren't buying that stuff then that will have an impact but sorry i don't have the answer to how we tackle the top the top one percent they've got a lot of power yeah they, they absolutely do but listen uh morgan fascinating um ideas and fascinating really important work and uh, if people want to check out your work and um, Global Action Plan, is there a website or whatever people can check out? Yeah, of course, we're on globalactionplan.org.uk um, and I think we're Global Act Plan on, um, on Twitter. Brilliant. Brilliant. Listen, thanks so much for joining me today on Reboot Republic. Really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks, Rory. Yeah, thanks for inviting uh, me. 
no worries, no worries at all. Great, great to hear you. And um, the that was uh, Morgan Phillips there. You can check out his work, as we said, part of uh, Global Action Plan. Really interesting stuff. Um, and really important that we, we kind of think about that and engage with it. Um, so, yeah, hope you enjoyed that podcast. And reminder that uh, we are an independent podcast produced by Tortoiseshack Media. And if you can, please become a patron, support us to keep producing the podcast um, and putting this really important information and conversations out there. And check out our back podcast, loads of them. Uh, discussing really interesting um, issues. We've had, of course, the discussion on the launch of the National Sustainable Home Building Agency. Um, and we had a really interesting one recently with Dean Scurry and lots more. Check them out. And listen, thank you so much for listening. If you can, as always, share the podcast around on social media. Let people know you're listening. Uh, we appreciate it. And we will talk to you all very, very soon. 